Since 2007, the Paul Meredith team at CityCan Financial has prided themselves on providing a better mortgage experience than you'll get anywhere else. Paul and his team will guide you through the home financing process with professional quality advice, exceptional service, and mortgage rates tailored to meet your specific needs. Their goal is to treat all of their clients the same way they would if they were doing a mortgage for their own mothers. They want to provide you with a wow experience with your mortgage from industry-leading low rates to giving their clients the rock star treatment. The Paul Meredith team would love to have the opportunity to help you out on your next mortgage and show you why they have over 300 five-star reviews on Google. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast dedicated to the issues surrounding homelessness and the incredible experts making a difference in the lives of homeless people. Remember to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening and share it with a friend. Now, here are Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door and Stefania Secha from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness with today's guest. Welcome to On The Way Home. Steph, how are you doing? I am good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Well, as I look out the window here in Toronto, Ontario, we are getting maybe our second or third snowstorm of the season, <laughs> which is nothing to complain about. But of course, you know, with the theme of this show, every time it snows, it snows badly and the temperatures drop. I do think of people that are not shoveling it off their cars, but shaking it off their sleeping bags. People are sleeping yeah. rough. So that's my immediate thought. And I'm hoping that uh, we take quick action to make sure no one has to uh, stay on the streets tonight. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Out here, we may not get the snowstorms in Vancouver, but uh, it gets very wet and very cold overnight. So yeah, um, and that uh, brings us to uh, my next point here that I'm really, really excited uh, to talk to uh, our next guest and interview for our, our inaugural podcast episode, uh, Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson. Uh, mayor Iveson has spent 14 years on city council and eight of those as mayor. He spent his time advocating for housing and even pledged an end to homelessness in his city, which is an extremely bold and um, excellent uh, goal to have. Um, and the efforts have shown since 2009, Edmonton has housed uh, 11,833 people and counting through Housing First. So welcome to the show. Oh, that's amazing. That was the website two days ago. And uh, thank you for the update. That's incredible. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, thank you. That's a perfect interruption. We want to be factual. Um, no, that's just so, so exciting. Uh, the Canadian Alliance, we we get to work with your city and we're just so proud of the work that you do and, and the charge that you lead. So thank you for being on the show with us today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm really glad to join. And as a mayor of uh, North America's largest northernmost city, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, it's always funny for us to hear people in Vancouver and, and Toronto complain about winter. Um, <laughs> but that is to say, you know, in, in this climate and in every part of this country and in every, every part of the world, but especially in, in winter cities, uh, there is that extra layer of urgency and injustice to leaving 
uh, people out in the cold, literally. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, so that is that is bracing and important framing for for this work that we're that we're doing together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, you know, you've you've been now for a long time and consistently, you know, championing solutions um, to end homelessness and and for people experiencing homelessness to to have a home and somewhere to go. Um, can you share with us a little bit of your journey and what has driven you to be so passionate um, and such a strong advocate for this cause? Well, even back to my first campaign running for council in 2007, it was boom times in Alberta, oil was triple digits, um, and affordable housing was a big issue for people at that time. Um, but it was the middle class conversation about uh, affordable housing, which was really parents wondering if their kids were going to be able to afford to buy a house. But within the whole spectrum of affordable housing need, uh, we also had a very large tent city um, around that time. And the, the juxtaposition of um, one of the wealthiest periods in Alberta's history, a boom time in our city, and um, hundreds of people sleeping in tents in our inner city um, prompted some very important action uh, by then Mayor Stephen Mandel to uh, convene people around uh, um, the, the issue of homelessness and um, that commission had gotten started and was doing work when I was running and I was very supportive of affordable housing issues generally along with you know public transit and, and environmental responsibility and a suite of things I've been working on for 14 years. So it was very much an issue of the day when I when I first got elected to City Hall. Um, and then the, the first plan to end homelessness uh, came forward during my first term on council. And for me, the juxtaposition was, was also personal because uh, one of my very dear friends from school um, who uh, also came from you know, a middle-class family just south of the university, um, went, to, went to a great school, um, great set of schools, um, wound up homeless um, because of um, uh, mental health and then uh, concurrent addictions challenges that um, that were undiagnosed at the time when when we knew him um, and and it was shortly after I got on city council that I actually walked past him nearly stepped over him downtown about a block from city hall and realized this here was my one of my very best friends from childhood who was um, in this situation. And uh, so that, you know, the, the, that juxtaposition of me being now in a position where I had some ability to help as a civic leader uh, and, and his understanding through a little bit through his circumstance and a few conversations with him over the years too about what's worked for him and what hasn't. I'm pleased to tell you Housing First has worked for him um, the last I heard, um, we're not in close touch, but, but, um, uh, the city adopted a 10 year plan to end homelessness grounded in the housing first model. And, um, I'm sad to say that's more than 10 years ago and we haven't ended homelessness, but, um, you know, I've come to meet so many individuals, um, and understand their lived experience with homelessness, including how housing has, um, been along with the right supports an antidote to, to not their condition of houselessness alone, but also the barriers to their uh, participation in community life, 
fulfillment, reconnection with family, reconnection uh, in many cases with, with the workforce and, and with community life. Um, and, and been just inspired by so many of those examples that I, I really believe we must apply ourselves as a society to, to do it. And then, uh, you know, also become well-versed over time with the case for why fiscally it's uh, really insane as a country that we haven't already done this. Um, and why I'm, I'm quite optimistic with the federal government's leadership, uh, increasing civic leadership, really strong civil society support. And we can talk about all of that some more, but, but um, you know, I, I see people who are experiencing homelessness, not, um, and I know people who have experienced homelessness. And so I start from that position of empathy. I build the public policy case on it. I, I bring allies to the table who talk about it in terms of investability in our downtowns and social disorder. And I'm live to all of those concerns, but fundamentally this is a human rights dignity and inclusion question for me that, that is unresolved societal work in a country as wealthy as this with weather as bizarre as we have it, um, really has no excuse, no excuse not to get this done. And so I've leaned into it as mayor, um, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, 12,111 people uh, later so far, we have, we have reduced it by more than half, uh, showing that that previous federal level of aspiration to reduce it by half is, is possible. And that's without everything all lined up the way it needs to be. Uh, to, if we line it up the rest of the way, and I know there are still skeptics about this, because uh, I bump into them routinely um, uh, in advocating for this, but, uh, but I, I firmly believe that we can end chronic homelessness in this country. And uh, so I, and the day the federal government said that in the throne speech last, last uh, fall, I was tears of joy for days because of the unfinished business, which is, which is personal uh, and a question of justice, but it's also gonna be great public policy. Uh, and I, I'm happy to play a small part in, in helping to nudge it along. Absolutely. And we're really glad that you're uh, taking that on and you're at the helm of it for your city. I think um, it's an understatement to say that Edmonton has really been leading the charge um, for Canada in driving down those numbers, saying that you've halved it, the 12, over 12,000 people, 12,111. That's incredible. Um because that's, that's now 12,111 people that we're not seeing on the streets languishing. Um, so, so, you know, in your time as mayor, it's been, it's been a few years now. Um, what has the city of Edmonton accomplished in that battle to end homelessness? And what are you most proud of? I, I think many things. We've, we've helped change the narrative around it uh, to see it increasingly as a solvable issue um, rather than something that just needs to be managed. Uh, so I think we've helped um, uh, through our work with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and the other big city mayors really raise uh, a sense of possibility and hope, but also urgency around this um, in informing the national housing strategy, the rapid housing initiative, the federal government's just brought forward as part of COVID relief. Um, and so there's been a lot of advocacy work, both with our public and with other orders of government. Um, and I, I think we have... Um, you know, there's two ways to look at this, this, uh, the number 12,000 is that I sometimes say um, lightheartedly that 
well, on that basis, we've ended homelessness three or four times because we had about 3,200 people experiencing homelessness back in 2006, seven, when, when this issue flared up with the first tent city. And we have housed that many people several times. So the issue is also um, coming to better understand uh, that it's also the influx of new people becoming homeless that we need to stem uh, with rapid rehousing initiatives, with anti-poverty initiatives. We need to understand the uh, systemic and intersectional uh, questions of, of racism and colonization that contribute to the overrepresentation of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in, in our um, community uh, uh, experiencing homelessness. And so I, I think we've hopefully raised the level of debate around these issues and also uh, Im improved um, or, or furthered a sense of the art of the possible um, and, and then tangibly helped more than 12,000 people uh, change their circumstance um, uh, in a way that other places might have given up on them. Yeah, you, you, I mean, there's so you have done incredible work. And it's interesting when you talk about uh, the new influx of people coming into homelessness, that always happens. We speak to prevention. We were talking uh, with Nick Falbo about a research report he put out talking about the effect of the pandemic that we may not see, there'll be a lag and we may not see the real effect of new people coming into homelessness for three to five years. The bright part of that, the bright side of that being that we have time. Um, and so when we t think about the future plans, what are the future plans for the city around ending homelessness? What, what has to happen next? Well, it's, you know, back to the whole uh, spectrum of, of affordable housing need, um, you know, they're going to, the market is being disrupted all over the place by this pandemic. And that creates challenges for people and for businesses. And then, then those are also opportunities if we want to seize them. So we've talked a lot about the opportunity to uh, acquire distressed properties. Um, and those may be, um, uh, you know, walk-up apartments and other buildings that could be added to the, um, just below market uh, housing inventory uh, operated by agencies uh, and not-for-profits um, uh, in order to make sure that there's sufficient supply of, of uh, housing um, that people can get to rather, you know, if they face eviction that they can um, make their way into housing before they become fully homeless and then before they become over time chronically homeless. So, so additional supply secured onto the public uh, roles um, uh, across the whole end of the affordability spectrum, I think is key. At the acute end, uh, we see a huge opportunity around hotels and motels um, because tourism's not gonna come back over that period of time either, I don't think. And um, so there's a massive oversupply of hotel rooms, which are not perfect for um, all kinds of supportive housing, but on a bridge basis and, and with the right kind of repurposing, uh, they are a lot better than um, temporary encampments. They're a lot better than converted arenas and convention centers. Um, and they provide a, a bit of private, uh, um, a bit of private uh, accommodation as well as congregate living, dining, other things that may be necessary for program. And so we, we see there's an opportunity for some strategic acquisition uh, uh, in the public portfolio. Again, not primarily by cities. This is not to enrich our our uh, asset, um, our you know our our, our balance sheet. Uh, really, it's going to be agencies who do this work who 
who can grow their portfolios strategically as well. A lot of these sites, aging motels and other things make sense as redevelopment sites for mixed income housing that may include an affordable component, but also on a social enterprise basis, help build a portfolio that enhances the sustainability of the agency. So I think, and, and we've talked with folks at CMHC about this, that the strategic portfolio opportunities that COVID opens up for many housing providers, including different kinds of partnerships with the private sector, really mean that we can address um, uh, supply deficiency for people who are in core housing needs, spending more than 30% of their income on housing today to prevent them from falling into homelessness. So there's that big piece of prevention work that, uh, that we're very focused on at the same time as we at the acute end look at uh, unit acquisition and unit construction. Um, and, and this is where the rapid housing initiative from the feds is, is so exciting um, because it means we can actually start to chip away at the the units needed for people experiencing chronic homelessness who need supports um, and in some cases may graduate to other forms of less supportive housing and back to market housing uh, or in other cases are going to have their much their needs much better met than cycling between the hospital and the remand center and the street um, at tremendous cost to the public primarily manifested um, in in costs that accrue to provincial governments and provincial taxpayers but they're very burdensome for cities as well in terms of the issues of criminalization and poverty, uh, calls for police resources to be used differently and better than they have been in terms of dealing with, uh, with, with uh, homelessness and, and uh, uh, social disorder issues sometimes linked to it. And so I, I do think, um, uh, you know, our, our really strongest push right now is around getting our provincial government uh, to buy into this change model. Um, so that they can realize the savings. You know, reports come out all the time about Alberta's fiscal challenges, which are only getting worse. And the costs of providing services here are higher than the rest of the country. Um, and one of the things that can be done to manage costs, again, in health and justice, would be to move into this prevention strategy and more stably accommodate people. So we'll continue to make the case for that. Um, so that because it's critical by the way that provinces step up and agree to provide these embedded operating supports uh, before the federal government will commit to the next round of, of RHI um, uh, capital investment and again they're putting hundred cent dollars on the table not asking for capital contributions from agency partners municipalities though we're happy to bring things like land to the table and expedited permitting so it's all hands on deck except for the premiers and not in all cases they're in BC for example they're very good on this um, and they're going to get more done and they're going to save more money and people in BC are going to have more dignity. Uh, I don't want to be left behind by British Columbia on anything, especially those things. So, uh, so we'll continue to really press our provincial government to make the investments and the operating commitments so they can save money, get better outcomes, reduce load on their uh, high demand, high cost services. Um, and that's the missing piece of the puzzle really here is the operating supports for the units the feds are prepared to build. Uh, or acquire so that we can end the chronic homelessness part of this. Um, so that's that's where that's where our press continues to be, and uh, um, and and yeah, let's let's talk. Ask hit, hit me with more questions. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the Greater Toronto Area. More than a business with a heart. Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, 
Complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Well, you know, you bring up some great points. Two things I want to highlight is that, hey, when we end homelessness, we prevent homelessness, not only do we save lives, we save um, we save dollars. It's, it's the the financial model that that you want. And absolutely, when we had uh, Adam Vaughn, we talked to him a while back, he said, in order for the strategy to work, all levels of government have to be on board. And you point that out, that everyone has to be an equal player in this. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned also that you, you don't want to fall behind British Columbia, of course, you know, you said that in chess. But let's be honest here, if every city um, had the passion of yourself and your team and what you've done and homelessness, our country would be in a much different spot. Why do you think um, Edmonton's had so much success in any homeless, more so than other cities? Well, I think it's a little bit the culture of this place um, and maybe the weather, um, but it's also sort of the, the Northern Alberta prairie pioneer thing. Um, you know, the history of this place goes back many thousands of years and, and there's a, a river crossing point that uh, Indigenous peoples have gathered at for a very long time from many, many uh, different cultural and linguistic groups. And so this, this place has actually a, a very, very deep significance as a, um, as a gathering and coming together place for trade, for peacemaking. Um, and, and, and so when Fort Edmonton was established here as sort of the first piece of colonization, those first winters were pretty hard for the settlers and the explorers. And it was with the welcome of indigenous peoples that, that they survived and, and uh, began to build this place together. And then through Treaty 6, uh, uh, you know, which is a co-prosperity arrangement fundamentally, um, uh, you know, the, the idea of uh, supporting each other's success is, is, is not just cultural, it's law um, and, and comes with obligations through treaty. And then I think, um, you know, this, just the settlement patterns and the, 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 the stewardship ethic of, of people, you know, who in a lot of cases are kind of one generation off the farm. Um, uh, there's just a sense that you can't do things alone. Like the rugged individual exceptionalism of other parts of the world uh, and even other places in Canada, uh, Edmonton runs a bit counter to that. We're sort of the Austin of Texas uh, culturally in a way. And I, I love that about this place. And it, it gives us a sense that um, we should make big plans and that we can deliver them if we work together. So the notion of a 10-year plan to end homelessness as audacious as it is, was something that, that resonated with people. And so that's the cultural uh, sort of um, backdrop that allowed leadership to to deliver it. And that leadership came uh, partly from the former mayor, Stephen Mandel, uh, and partly from Ed Stelmack, who was the premier at the time. Um, and he was the first premier to commit to a provincial 10-year uh, plan. Uh, and that was very much a lockstep partnership between not just Edmonton and the government of Alberta, but the seven cities groups in Alberta, which was all of the larger urban centers where Alberta's homelessness concentrates. So, you know, I, I get lots of Edmontonians who are passionate about this issue saying, just get on and do it. You know, the city should just do it on our own. And I'm like, hold on, property taxpayers in Edmonton should not be shelling out. First of all, it's not our jurisdiction. <laughs> and second of all, um, the savings go to the province. And third of all, this is, I've got Northern Alberta's homeless challenges 
concentrated in the city. And so that's why it's all orders of government that, that need to be a part of this. And there was this, this on top, th there was this precious time, um, you know, 10, 12 years ago, where we made huge progress in this because there was alignment. And the federal government wasn't there at the time, but the province was and the city was, and the agencies were, civil society was, faith communities were, we're all pulling in the same direction. That got us kind of rolling and meant that we still have momentum even uh, and, and in some ways we have more because the federal government is now fully engaged and, and prepared to pump investment into the infrastructure. But the big gap in our system is that the provincial government is not fully bought into this change model and has different priorities around this. And I don't think they're actually that different. Some of the, what they're trying to do on addictions and mental health, I think is actually very groundbreaking and is the program supports that need to be embedded in the units that the feds wanna buy and that we wanna build. And so I think finding a way to get the provincial government aligned with the seven cities who still are passionate about this in Alberta and people cite uh, Medicine Hat all the time as one of those seven cities that actually got there. Now, in truth, Medicine Hat's toughest cases wound up in Calgary and Edmonton. So, so there's a bit of an export issue around that though kudos because they, they ran housing first and it worked and they showed the model. And it was actually the fiscal conservative business case that appealed to, um, I know I know talking to Ed, uh, who's a friend and a mentor of mine, Stelmack, um, that, that it wasn't, that was what convinced his colleagues, because in his heart of hearts, he wanted to do it for the right reasons. But he brought his conservative colleagues along on the strength of the business case. Um, I think if, if, if we can get that alignment back with all orders of government, we could do this, you know, we could do this within a year. Love but it. I get in trouble by by hastening the timeline because I, I famously said last fall that we needed a 10 week plan to do this in the pandemic. And we did put a roof over everyone's head who, who wanted it by expanding the shelter capacity on a temporary basis to be able to do that. We secured the rapid housing initiative and we secured a federal government commitment to end chronic homelessness together. So we didn't properly uh, house people with dignity in their own units over those 10 weeks, but we did help change the game during that time and we're able to close our camp with no violence and no arrests. So we didn't get all the way to the finish line, but we, we moved the goalposts. Um, but I still think if, if we're all pulling in the same direction here, and again, you know, Alberta would get all those fiscal benefits and health and justice, and, and, and we'd be able to say that the downtowns of our cities are safe and investable as part of COVID recovery as well, which is, so we could check all the boxes. We could check all the boxes, use up all of Ottawa's money to buy units, create jobs while building them. Like yeah. the multiple benefits of this seem, seem pretty straightforward to me. So, um, so we'll be looking in the provincial budget right away here to see if the province, if the penny has dropped for them yet. Well, let's, let's uh, very much hope so. Um, you talked about pivoting and you did, you had to pivot, you know, February, March, 2020, things were, took a bit of a turn. Um, but hey, let's, let's focus on the positive silver linings coming out of this pandemic. What do you see as uh, some of the learnings and silver linings coming through this? Um, well, um micro and then macro um micro you know we've we've learned a lot about what and and we probably always will need some shelter and transitional housing capacity for even if we've eliminated chronic homelessness because people will fall on on difficult circumstances in the short term we've learned a lot about 
um, minimum shelter standards and low barriers through the excellent work that our agency partners have done at Tapinawa, which is the Indigenous name that was given to our convention centre, which we've repurposed during COVID here over the winter uh, for um, up to during the cold snap 350 uh, uh, spots overnight and more more day spots because it's easier to maintain spacing during the day it's a pretty large facility uh, so we've been doing a lot of day programming in there uh, as well as the overnight space and it's been full pretty much every night and and um, you know even on the coldest nights during the polar vortex here um, we uh, you know, we, we were able to sort of learn some things about why people come to some shelters and not others. And I think that's going to create some uh, further, some further work and hopefully some accountability to all of the shelter uh, operators to come into alignment with standards around particularly cultural safety uh, and inclusion for Indigenous people, which we've worked really hard and it's not perfect, but we worked really hard at Tepinawao. Uh, and there was actually a beautiful story that came out of there of, of Cree language uh, programming that was able to uh, connect with somebody and then connect them back to their family uh, back home up north after they'd been lost to their family for a very long time. Um, and it was it was cultural programming that helped to do that. So I think that, you know, that's one human story and life that was changed by by this this investment and this program and this approach to running shelters. I think there's lots of learnings that will come out of that that will change the the shelter work and and uh, how we meet people where they are culturally and with their addictions and mental health uh, circumstances. That's at the micro. At, at the macro, I think that, you know, overall the pandemic has really shown humanity, um, you know, in, in the highs and lows that if we decide we want to do something as a people, as a species, as a or even as a society or as a, a community, we can do extraordinary things on very short timelines if we set our minds to it and decide that it's it's in our broader interest. And I hope that we will we will plug into that. I mean, I do think that came out of the first part of this century and and the world wars and the mobilization and the public health crisis and the Spanish flu. I think those those are all things that intergenerationally we've kind of lost. Maybe the sense of common enterprise, common purpose, um, and 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 common aspiration to do great things. And I, I think the pandemic, once we're through the worst of it, I hope it teaches us that and that we will have seen what, what was possible and hopefully by the end of it, uh, worked to rapidly end chronic homelessness. Um, but that if it's not done by then, which would still be unacceptable to me, that, that it is in the category of things that we are gonna finally get around to doing right. Uh, because a whole bunch of things we've become complacent around in our prosperity as we defined it before the pandemic. You know, it's, it's, it's pulled focus on what really matters in terms of our health, in terms of our, our physical and basic economic security and how we're gonna provide for each other, right? And so I, I hope that there'll be some, some macro changes that come out of that that will also be beneficial to the housing file, the anti-poverty file, the, the anti-racism work that is all needs to be woven in uh, to, to, uh, to really also stemming the, the injustices and the inequities that, that have contributed to homelessness. So, um, and, and maybe I'll just add one other thought on this, which is that I think, you know, we're having to have some different conversations about mental health because of the mass mental health implications of, of this pandemic and what it's meant for, for everybody. <laughs> I don't know about you, I'm pretty tired and pretty stressed out from this. Um, and if that creates some greater sensitivity and, and takes stigma down more around mental health 
then perhaps that will assist us in, in coming compassionately and with less and ideally no judgment to people whose mental health circumstances, uh, particular, whether they're trauma informed or whether they're, um, whether otherwise, though they, it piles up for, for people uh, on the streets. And, and uh, you know, I hope that, that that trauma awareness, that compassion, uh, that, uh, and, and a reduction in stigma will also help us um, humanize these conversations uh, um, on, on all these complex issues going forward. I hope. Yeah, that's that's so great. And 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 speaking of those learnings, it kind of leads nicely into uh, my next question for you, which is, uh, you know, how recently you announced that you won't be seeking another term as mayor. And as a former journalist, I will resist the urge to speculate on what exactly is next for you and pressure you to answer that. So my question is, you know, as you get set for your new adventure, what advice would you give to your fellow mayors about ending homelessness? Well, keep the faith. Um, which I think they will, knowing knowing Canada's big city mayors uh, and knowing many of the mid-sized city mayors in Alberta who are really thoughtful and, and compassionate about these issues. Because, and, and I, I, this is where I don't think it's a hard sell for mayors because, I mean, we, we go to work in our city halls and town halls um, at all scales in this country, which tend to be in the heart of your community, which tends to be where if you have homelessness of any scale, you're going to see it. And it's pretty hard to be out and about in the community at the local level and, and working with agencies and hearing from businesses about their challenges uh, with social disorder. And then also, you know, um, if, if you get a chance and, and take any time to just be out in the community, you get to know these folks and, and see their humanity and, um, um, and, and joke around with them and then get their feedback on, on what's working and what's not working. And, and when you're, this is why I think cities and local governments should be empowered to do so much more because it is grounded in the human realities of what's happening uh, in your community on the ground. And, and provincial and federal governments and inter, international work is all really, really important. But I think mayors continue to have an opportunity to articulate um, in strength, especially in coalition through groups like Federation of Canadian Municipalities and the Big City Mayors Network, um, uh, to, to really move the needle. And we have moved the needle on this. So, um, and, and I, I think at this point, um, it's actually my, my other advice to them, and, and I gave this advice to them already, but uh, in a recent conversation we were having is that it's time to get more aggressive with the provinces around this because uh, in certain parts of the country, um, you know, cities are, are sort of on the defensive because we've got uh, provincial regimes that are pointing the figure at us. But, you know, with eight cents of the tax dollar and 60% of the infrastructure and all of the undealt with challenges from senior orders of government's jurisdiction flowing to us, especially in the big cities, that's not really a partnership outlook, right? And so I think that, you know, there are a lot of questions and cities aren't perfect, but we're the first to wear mistakes on the sleeve. We do everything uh, just about out in public and, and try to have a learning culture around these things. And, and so even though if you ask Canadians, like, uh, do you trust government with your money? The answer is no. But if you ask them a second question, which is, well, among the three orders of government, who do you trust the most? They generally trust Ottawa the least because it's the furthest away and most abstract. Makes sense. And unless there's been a scandal or something, they overwhelmingly and consistently uh, pick their local government uh, as the one that they trust the most. And so I think 
Uh, and provinces are kind of in this messy in between where they're always asking for more resources from Ottawa and don't want to raise taxes at home um, and, and then are either working with or at war with their local government partners. And I just think Canadians are tired of that. I'm certainly tired of that, having been caught up in the mix of it. And I think, you know, taking the conversation back to, okay, look, I'm, I'm happy to talk about all of the city of Edmonton's uh, challenges and opportunities to do things better. But let's have a conversation about uh, whether our provinces are getting good value for money for Canadians in these areas of their jurisdiction where costs, we all know public health care sustainability is a question. So why are we allowing something that in the case of certain, you know, documented individuals will drive more than a million dollars a year of cost in the healthcare system through interactions with um, uh, emergency rooms and, and then overnight stays uh, and avoidable uh, interactions with the mental health parts of the infrastructure that could be so much better met. Like Alberta Health Services gets it. They, they're fully subscribed to the supportive housing embedded services model because they know that a nurse at a supportive housing facility, and they've documented this, is going to uh, prevent uh, the load for four or five nurses at the, at the downtown hospital. So, so they get it why provinces aren't tripping over themselves to take this win and document it and say, hey, we're, we're getting better value for money people, uh, for people and, and better outcomes here. So I, I think we got to actually put the pressure back on the provinces. And, and we've encouraged the federal government too to say, the provinces are very quick to, to go to Ottawa and say, we need more money. I mean, we're all, this junior orders of government are all good at going to dad and saying, mom and dad and saying, you know, could you help us out please? Um, and, and and I, I think it's time for the federal government to say, well, in, until you can show better outcomes for the 50 billion we're already giving you for health and social transfer by actually delivering uh, a, a housing policy within your jurisdiction that, that, that we know provides cost avoidance for all Canadians and better outcomes for people, we're not gonna give you any more money. <laughs> like it's time to cut them off till they can show better results. And I, I think we've been very polite about this because as mayors, we have to work with our provinces. They have so much power over us. We're in this really imbalanced and, and fairly dysfunctional relationships between cities and, and, and provinces. And I think it, it may be time to get a little bit more aggressive about this. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, well, I am super intrigued. Yeah, I'm well, yeah, I'm just super intrigued to see um, what's next for you. Um, and, and as you yeah, wind down, too. is there? <laughs> oh, I mean, join the join the crowd, man, it's all good. <laughs> but uh, COVID has changed everything. Um, so so just speaking of all this great work that that you folks have done in Edmonton, um, and that 12,000 and counting, um, how can folks find out more about the work you and your team are doing to end homelessness in Edmonton? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a really broad team with just phenomenally committed agency partners, people on the front lines who've just been doing unbelievable work through the pandemic, uh, literally on the front lines. And, and hats off to the folks at, uh, uh, at all of the agencies and at Tepinawao at our shelter, uh, temporary accommodation. And, and, and just, it's, it's a real team effort here. And the folks who help coordinate that, um, uh, here are Homeward Trust, um, uh, who are a 
our main partners and, and they're the recipients of the reaching home dollars from the federal government and, and help deliver the housing uh, and coordinate uh, in, in partnership with the city, the 10 year plan to end homelessness. Um, and so homewardtrust.ca has the dashboard that'll tell you how many people we've housed as, as well as links to all of the resources. And then a lot of the research that substantiates what I've been saying about cost avoidance, um, you know, Ambrose Place, uh, which is uh, a really beautiful, um, uh, supportive housing uh, community here in Edmonton has done a number of studies that show the reduced interaction with police, reduced interaction with health um, and, and better outcomes for people over time. And then also uh, in aggregate and then in specific, just amazing stories of people reconnecting with Indigenous culture um, that that will warm your heart. So there's plenty of plenty of material there on their website and links through to all of the many other partners and agencies who are, who are actually doing this work uh, on the ground at homeworktrust.ca. And I'm so grateful to them. Like I, I, I just just blows my mind what people are capable of when they're all pulling in the same direction. Absolutely, and having really great leadership to to lead that charge. So I just again uh, want to thank you so much for making time for us today, and and uh, and yeah, giving us really thoughtful answers to our questions. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out, and thanks for for the work that uh, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness and and all of its supporters are doing to make this conversation national. I I, I think Canada should be the first. Uh, country to do this um, and uh, and you're helping make that possible so so thank you amazing well Michael I don't know how uh, you thought that went I thought that was really great and super informative and you know I first heard Mayor Iverson's story about his childhood friend um, at, in 2019 at the National Conference on Ending Homelessness and that story really stuck with me and I'm glad he shared that again with us today yeah, it's truly personal to him. It shows his compassion, his commitment. And I'm thinking we heard a lot about uh, all levels of government and, and the provinces stepping up. And uh, you know, I'm hoping that we will not lose after his term ends uh, a champion like him in this battle to end homelessness. And I'm confident we won't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so important to stay committed to ending homelessness. Um, so yeah, I, I uh, hope to see that theme uh, in leadership across Canada continue and, and spark. Well, I can yeah. tell you that, uh, uh, though I haven't actually decided what I'm gonna do when I grow up, that this is something, even just as a volunteer, uh, I'm gonna continue to lend whatever support I, I can um, locally here in Edmonton and, and beyond. Um, so, so this, because it's personal and because it's unfinished business until it's done, I'll be fairly relentless on this. You can count on me. Spoken like a true champion. Thank you so much. Well, Michael, I guess I'll see you next week. See you again. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. A quick reminder to subscribe to the show on any platform you're listening. And if you'd like to find out more about Blue Door, visit bluedoor.ca. To get more information about the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, go to caeh.ca. See you next time. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. 
we have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.